So open up to uh, Hebrews, Hebrews 5. And we'll be starting at verse 11. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washing, the laying of on hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For a land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to be cursed, and its end is to be burned. This is the Holy Scriptures from God written for us. Thank you, Matthew. Well, it is, uh, it's good to be here. Thanks for your prayers. Last weekend, I was away uh, speaking at a retreat. There's four teaching sessions in the span of about 36 hours. So it was a lot of teaching, but it was a lot of fun, and always good fruit comes from those times. Well, over the last, uh, I believe it's now been about five years, uh, Andre and I and our family have, have been able to be a part of about four or five different missional communities. And uh, we haven't been part of four or five different missional communities because we keep hopping ship or jumping ship. Uh, and many reason is because we've started a missional community in our home and then that missional community has grown and people have come to know Jesus and then we've multiplied out of our home. And so as a result, we've had about four different, four or five different groupings of missional communities that we have been a part of. Now, the nature of every single missional community is that when you first start being together as a new group of people, you kind of like skirt around the edges with one another. And what I mean by that is something called pseudo-community, where you're, you're not really wanting to rock the boat very much. You're, you're just sort of in that phase of getting to know each other a little bit, right? And we all know this. Maybe for some of you, you feel that way related to Sunday morning or when you walk in on a Sunday morning. Like the greeters aren't going to stop and ask you, so tell me about your relationship with your father. You're like, where, where did that come from, right? Like, you don't ask those sorts of things when you're starting to get yourself involved in a community. But as time goes on, you eventually start to get involved in each other's lives. You start to care about the inner workings of one another's lives. And what you ultimately find is that if you're part of a missional community, you start living out these DNA groups. And DNA groups are places where we disciple each other, we, we care for each other and nurture one another, and then hold each other accountable. And in those groups, you begin asking some of those questions, you begin asking those questions of, hey, on Tuesday night at Potluck, you seem to treat your wife fairly poorly. Why did you do that? 
Oh, leave me alone. Why, why would you ask me that sort of thing? Or, you know, you begin to actually get into the inner workings, the inner details of each other's lives. And the reason you do those things is because you want to grow. You, you don't want to remain the way that you are, and you're committing yourself to the process of discipleship. And as you build relationship, you begin to trust each other even more. And our author, our pastor of Hebrews, is getting to that place of his letter. He's getting to that place where he's been sort of on this, this grand scale, theological, embedding himself, helping us understand what are the deep, meaningful truths about the superiority of Jesus. We saw that Jesus, he's superior to the angels. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to Aaron. He's superior to Joshua. He's the better of all of these different people. And here he is at chapter 5. And, and, and last week, Pastor James did an excellent job of beginning to break down that, that Jesus is the greater high priest. But now our author, our pastor, our orator, as we have been saying, takes a break for a second because he realizes he, he needs to start pushing on the button. He needs to start pushing. He needs to start saying, okay, so this is the theology, but how is it actually playing itself out in your lives? Is it changing you or is it remaining up here? And so this morning, I have the opportunity, the privilege to push. And this is not easy. I've been, I've been really kind of nervous about this message all week long because I truly believe that this morning we are going to come face to face with what I believe as your pastor, as one of the pastoral staff as part of the church, is that what I'm dealing with today with all of you is one of the greatest issues I see in the life of Church of the City. And I believe, though, that there is an opportunity that as we identify the reality of what is going on here, it can press us into deeper places and deeper places within our understanding of who God is and what God has done in sending Jesus to us to save us. So if you will allow the process of pushing, of prodding, as I read one commentator say, meddling, if you would allow the order to meddle into your life, if you would allow me to meddle into your life a little bit, today I believe we'll come out on the other side understanding greater who Jesus is and why he is so important for our lives. Can I pray for us? So Heavenly Father, I thank you yet again that you are here, and that your Holy Spirit is inside of us, and that you desire deep, meaningful heart change. And so you had these writers write and orate and give these letters to people groups. We learned, as we saw in weeks past, that the word of God is like an active sword piercing through our hearts, knowing exactly where to start. And so, Holy Spirit, I understand today that you want to do a a very distinct work in our lives. As you've done in my life this week and even this morning as I've prepared in my mind to be here today, to, to jump in here to Hebrews 5, God, I pray that you'd give us soft hearts that we might hear what the Holy Spirit has to say and that we would change because of it. God, if we have come in and that we simply do show-up service or we do this pop-up service that we do and we disband and nothing changes because of what we've heard and experienced and seen, this has been such a waste of time. So do what only you can do this morning, we pray. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, Hebrews 5, verse 11. Our author wants to give us two warnings, two warnings as God's people, two warnings that he has seen in this group of people that needs to point out within their spiritual walks, within their church. 
And so here is the beginning of our first warning, and I'll get to it. I'll declare the warning. I'll use something to illustrate it. But here he starts. About this, verse 11, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain. Now we have to stop and say, about what does he have much to say, and why is it hard to explain? And about that of which he is trying to explain is what James touched on last week. And James even introduced his message by saying, this is incredibly dense. Because it's dense, right? And he's saying, about this, about what I've said, about Jesus being the greater high priest, I have much to say. And it's hard to explain. Especially to you people, since you have become dull of hearing. Now what does he mean, dull of hearing? The author is getting at the immaturity of the listeners. They don't have mature ears. They don't have mature minds or hearts to grasp the concept. They lack spiritual commitment. They're spiritually lazy people who struggle to understand the concept. And what he's saying is only the spiritually mature people are actually going to have the time, the energy, and the focus to actually investigate this further. Stop meddling. For though, by this time, you ought to be teachers... Now, what's he meaning by teachers? Well, he's not addressing public gathering teaching. He's saying, you ought to be teachers in the sense that you were commanded by Jesus Christ to go and make disciples, and you're not making disciples. You ought to be able to instruct younger believers. You ought to be able to instruct people that have no understanding of who God is in the ways of the gospel. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again. Again. Meaning you've already been taught it. You've got to be taught it again. The basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. So what is he talking about? The basic principles of the oracles of God is that they haven't yet grasped the most elementary truths of God's word. The most elementary truths of God's word. Certain fundamentals are required prior to understanding deeper truths. And he's saying, you don't even understand the basics. He's saying, you need milk, not solid food. He goes on to say, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. What's the word of righteousness? Well, the, the word of right living with God, which is the gospel. You don't get the gospel. You don't get what your standing is. You don't understand that you're, you're made right before God because of Jesus. You can't understand that. They could not articulate the gospel and the basis of their salvation. He goes on in verse 14, But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. He's saying only the mature can distinguish good from evil. It's the immature that are too weak and have not had enough practice. What's the author saying? Potential illustration would be helpful. I have a photo here. And this is a photo of uh, what some have looked to as, uh, I know that many of us are like, oh, he's thinking about evolution. What I'm thinking about here is that every human being, okay, about to make an absolute statement, right? Every human being starts as a baby, and then, and then gets bigger, 
right? Eventually to becoming uh, an adult, unless you watch Benjamin Button. It's a little bit of a weird, strange concept. Born as a baby, as an old man, then grows backwards. Anyways, the point being is that every human being starts as a baby and then grows up. Now, we all understand that, that babies, by and large, they, they use breast milk or they use formula, right? But as a baby gets older, you start introducing other things. And many of you in this room are parents, and you know this, right? You begin to introduce different things. You like squash up the sweet potato. You give them the sweet potato. You go on to other things. Why? Because their body, as they grow, is more capable of taking on greater foods. You don't serve a, a piece of steak to a baby that's been just born. This is what the author is getting at. He's saying, you're trying to feed yourself steak. And you don't even, you haven't even had the breast milk. You don't get the breast milk. Drop's trying to go to the steak. I'm going to show you some picture, and it'll make you laugh. I'd assume, right? This is one. This is very strange, right? We don't look at this picture and say that's completely natural. We look at that picture and be like, the guy just needs to grow up, right? Or how about this other one, uh, combo, right? Uh, older men looking like babies, now, this is jarring, right? You look at this, you're like, something's not right. Here's the warning number one. Beware of prolonged spiritual infancy. We must grow up. Beware of prolonged spiritual infancy. We must grow up. He said, you're needing to be taught again. The elementary principles. Again! You've already been taught it? Why do you need to be taught it again? Because you didn't internalize it the first time. So you need to be taught it again the second time. And maybe the third time. And maybe the fourth time. You're not applying what you're hearing. Now what does a spiritual infant look like? Very helpful. The author tells us. Number one, they have a shallow understanding of the gospel, scripture, and God himself. He's going to go as far as to say here is that if you're a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have a moral responsibility to know and understand the gospel and the scriptures. To deliberately ignore God's word is a moral problem, not an intellectual problem. It's a wrong thing to avoid. Their spiritual maturity was their own fault. So here's the question. Do you know the gospel? Can you communicate the gospel? Can you communicate God's plan of salvation through you, the use of the scriptures? And if not, our order would say you are an infant. If yes, you are growing in your maturity. Now I have to be honest. This is where I have pastoral concern. And the challenge that I hear is people say, I want a Bible study. A great test of if you're ready or not for a Bible study is, tell me the gospel. Share with me the good news of Jesus for salvation. Because what our author is saying is, if you can't do that, you're not ready for more things. This is what he's saying in Hebrews. I'm going to take a break from the Jesus as the high priest because you're forgetting the nature of your salvation. You don't know it. You haven't internalized it. Do you know the gospel? Do you believe the gospel? Can you look at parts of the Old Testament and say, this is how Jesus fulfills that? Can you go to some parts of the New Testament? 
Can you name a couple of verses where the message of salvation is one's verses that you should go to when you're sharing the gospel with another human being? Do you know the gospel? Second implication is that we must grow to internalize the teaching that we receive. As I prayed, like how much of a waste of time would this whole thing be? Of energy, time, resources, your time, my time. To leave this place and not allow anything of what has happened here to sink into you. To begin practicing it out. And I hear people saying, I need another Bible study in the week. I'm like, really? You need another one? I'm struggling to apply what I taught on Sunday. Why do you need another one? Because we think it's an intellectual problem. It's a moral problem. It's a problem with our hearts. We have to desire more. We've got we to gotta get down to understanding the basics. Secondly, the second, what does spiritual infancy look like? He points out in verse 12, you're of little help to those in and outside the Christian faith. As Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples. The implication is that every Christian, every believer should grow in their preparedness to train new believers in the fundamentals of the faith. Growing up means learning to help those around you who are also growing. So my questions to all of us here is who's looking to you? Who ought you to be training? Which Christians are contributing to your spiritual stagnation? This is, this is a problem I see. Believers, people that f- say they follow Jesus, hanging out, and that rather than actually building each other up in ways of the faith, they actually contribute to one another's spiritual stagnation. Or it's like, I'm not going to grow if you don't grow. Or you're watching that show, I'll watch that show too, even though you know you shouldn't be watching that television show. I've seen, I've seen this, I've witnessed this. Like, for a very long time, I've seen it in my own life where sometimes believers are actually the worst influence on you. You need to go hang out with some non-Christians. Because they'll ask you the tough questions. And your Christian friend is sitting there never asking you a tough question. Get away from them. They're pulling you down. They're not helping you. They're not teaching you, that's for sure. What's another sign of spiritual infancy? Three, the inability to discern the sound from the unsound. Richard Phillips writes, Perpetually infant Christians are unable to distinguish between genuine and ungenuine expressions of the faith, between the sound and the dangerous, between the spirit of God and the spirit of the age. In recent years, this has been demonstrated by vast hordes of shallow Christians who chase after one or another of the bizarre movements emphasizing strange experiences or quick riches, but which have no discernible connection with the teaching of righteousness that is Jesus Christ. Discernment is a theological grid and worldview to help us make decisions. Can you make decisions? Do you have a genuine understanding to discern right from wrong? False gospel, real gospel. Well, whose responsibility is this? Well, I believe there is an individual responsibility that we need to learn and grow for ourselves. Grow up. Take responsibility for your spiritual growth. If you're depending on me or the other pastoral staff, you need to grow up. If the only time you open your Bible is here, you need to grow up. Because this isn't going to do it. If you're not being discipled by somebody else, if you're not surrounding yourself by people who are all trying to disciple each other, you're being discipled by something, and it's not fellow believers. 
You're potentially being discipled by your workplace. You're potentially being discipled by the music that you listen to. You're potentially being discipled by the television shows that you watch. And you're, you're not even seeing it. You're blind. And Satan loves it. Grow up. Well, where do we start? Some of us are sitting here like, okay, where do I start? Quit meddling. Where do I start? He goes on to give us the ABCs of the Christian faith. He writes in verse 1 of chapter 6, Let us therefore leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. So once the foundation is laid, it's time to build on the house. So what are the foundational truths of the Christian faith? Well, number one, he writes in verse 1b, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and a faith toward God. Foundational truth number one is repentance and faith. Another way of saying this is our justification. Saying there's no authentic faith without repenting. Once you repent, you can only truly rest in Christ and his righteousness. You cannot earn your own salvation. Trust in Christ. Repent of your desire to save yourself. He's saying so many of you are turning to what you can do for you. You're not allowing Jesus to do what only Jesus can do for you. Turn to Jesus for your justification. Verse 2, and instructions about washings, the laying on of hands. The second foundational truth is leave behind ritualistic practices. Or in other words, your sanctification. Leave behind those things that you believe are the things that give you your washing, your purity, your cleansing. In the Old Testament, the laying on of hands, now because of Christ, was getting in the way of understanding Christ's gift of purification. And thirdly, the resurrection of the dead and the eternal judgment. Third foundational principle is the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, i.e. glorification. The destiny of believers after death. Hope in the resurrection that awaits us after the grave. The resurrection of the dead is for our final judgment. Unless Christ stands as our advocate and substitute, we cannot stand before God. These are the three foundational truths. Do you know these? Do you internalize these? If you're here and you don't follow Jesus and you're like, wow, this guy is hard. This is difficult. Read the scriptures. It's not my words. It's these words. And guaranteed, you would argue that you see a lot of two-faced Christians out there. And believe me, Christians are two-faced. We'll always struggle with being hypocrites. But hear me. We need to stand on Jesus We need to stand on Jesus as our justification, not ourselves as our justification. And the world would do so well if we were to grow up. The world would be a better place if we were to grow up. Because they'd see us being honest about ourselves and wanting to change the world around us with the good news of Jesus Christ. So how do we grow into these mature ideas? The answer is found in verse 3. And this we will do if God permits He starts, this we will do. So the author believes the recipients will rise to the occasion. Will you rise to the occasion? Will you grow up? And secondly, if God permits. What the author believes is that maturation, growing in maturity, is also dependent on God. He grows us and gives us spiritual opportunities to thrive in our faith. So this we will do, hand-holding God, who gives us the opportunities, who grows us who leads us, who gives us the desires to grow. Because if it's a desire solely from yourself, that won't get you very far. But through God, we can do it. 
Okay, that's warning number one. Ugh, quit meddling. Warning number two. Verse four. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him to contempt. Whew. Now, I will explain this. But contextually, there's a big question that goes around. Who are these people that were enlightened that's imp- impossible to restore? It's a big debate. Like, are we talking about believers here, non-believers? Who are we talking about? And we need to keep in mind that the surrounding texts are all about not neglecting the great salvation as the Israelites had in the wilderness. People who had experienced the Egypt exodus yet fell away under hardship and when they went into rebellion. And instead of maturing, the author is using that illustration the same way to those that are part of the church. Instead of maturing, many in the church were neglecting salvation offered in Christ and were stalling in their spiritual growth and abandoning the faith when things got hard. So who are the three possible groups that this is speaking to? Well, number one, they could be genuine, regenerate followers of Jesus. These, these could be people that, were, that he's speaking about here were followers of Jesus. They committed themselves to the gospel, they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and then they decided to turn and go away. And this is known as, and part of the large worldview of this related to the scriptures is, is one in which the Arminian view of understanding of our salvation generally falls into. Now, I disagree with this view because of John 5, verse 24, for example, that said by Jesus, it's truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. So this person, it doesn't seem like there's an impossibility. Or John 10, verse 28 to 29, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's Jesus, verse 28, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. John 10, 28 to 29, Romans 8, verse 39, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. So these are, these are truthful verses that speak to the entirety of the scriptures and these couldn't have been genuine followers of Jesus. The second suggestion then is maybe it's a hypothetical warning that the author is simply saying, hey, this could happen, it it might happen. It's a rhetorical technique, some suggest, used to offer ominous warning of something that cannot actually happen, yet cautions believers in that sense to cling to Christ. That's the second option. I don't fully align with that option either. This is the option I believe I align to looking at the entirety of the scripture. This is the third option. Is that the, the scripture here is speaking about those without real, true, saving faith. It's those who have tasted the things of Christ but not become genuine believers. These people are participants but not actually members. They could be those who make professions of faith, got involved in the church, showed signs of growth, yet ultimately fall away. They know who Christ is and what he has offers, yet they fall away from him. 
So the warning number two, significant warning, beware of participation that is not genuine salvation. Beware of participation that is not genuine salvation. What this means is that you can participate in a church, be in community, have true knowledge of the gospel, be a witness to salvation by watching others, but not actually experience salvation personally. This is heavy. To help us understand, the author illustrates his point in the last two verses of the section. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Do you hear the illustration? It's the same land that has heard the same news. It's the same illustration that, that Jesus in the parable in Matthew 13 and Mark 4 talks about, you know, the, the, the sowing of seeds in the different places and some grows up to maturity and others doesn't based upon the conditions. It can also be compared to Jesus' illustration in Matthew 7, verse 24 to 25. He writes, everyone then, and says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Is your faith founded on the rock? Where are the roots of your faith? What is your foundation? Now the apparent tension here is, has been a tension throughout theology for many years. Is salvation on me or is salvation as God? How can I be assured of my salvation? How can I know that I'm saved? I mean, I'm participating in the community. How can I know? Three things. I believe the scripture speaks to this. Is number one, salvation is the work of God. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now what's interesting here is that the author states that it's impossible to restore those who have been enlightened. But it does not mean that God cannot restore them. It does not mean that God cannot restore them. Matthew 19, verse 26 tells us this, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Salvation, therefore, is the work of God, but secondly, it's evidenced by faith. Hebrews 11, verse 6 says, and without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. Mere knowledge and intellectual understanding is not enough. The question must be, what have you done with such knowledge and understanding? Well, what about the hearing of the gospel? And then thirdly, salvation is the work of God, evidenced by faith that what leads to maturity or fruit bearing. Matthew 7, verse 18 to 19 says, A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This is heavy. 
Richard Phillips, in his Hebrews commentary, writes, Truly regenerate, genuine believers can do terrible things. But a good tree, that is one that is truly connected to Christ and has the Holy Spirit at work within, will necessarily go on to bear good fruit. It cannot do otherwise. When things are getting tough, where do you go? Do you cling to Christ? Do you know the gospel? Do you internalize the good news of Jesus for salvation? Or is it simply intellectual understanding? One of the uh, most helpful illustrations for me was given by a, a pastor by the name of David Platt. And he, he was speaking, and he said, imagine that I showed up late to this speaking gig. And he says, and so we're all sort of waiting and wondering, music has happened, and then we're all sort of waiting, like, where's David? He didn't show up. I hope he comes soon. And then about five, ten minutes, you wait, and then he shows up, and he runs onto the stage. And he says, oh, I'm sorry I'm late, everybody. You'll never guess. Everyone's like, whoa, whoa, what happened? I was hit by a Mack truck. I was hit by a transport. You're never going to believe it. I got out of my car, was standing in the middle of the road, and I got hit. It was crazy. But hey, I'm here now. Let's get on with it. Now, you'd uh, probably, if you're in the audience, be like, you're lying. Because if you were hit by a transport, you wouldn't be standing here right now. You wouldn't be standing here. You'd say, one, you wouldn't be standing here. But two, you, you look fine. There's no blood, <laughs> there's no bruises, there's no broken bones, and usually when people get hit by transports on the highway, they're not sitting here. So you're lying. Platt stops and he says, the love of God in Christ ought to have the same effect. That when we say, I believe the good news of Jesus... What is the view of your life? Are you changed? Are your motivations changed? Have your desires changed? Have the way that you live your life changed? Are you pursuing what heaven would look like on earth? And does it look like everybody else on your streets or everybody else in your same cubicles or everybody else in your class? And we're walking around saying, I believe the good news of Jesus, yet we look no different than everybody else around us. It's like standing before a crowd and saying, I've been hit by a transport, yet our lives look no different. So here's a couple response questions as we, we begin to transition. Number one, is interrupted intimacy with God the greatest deterrent in your life to sin? Do you grieve sin and lost intimacy with God after you sin? Now you might be asking the question, why are you getting into the intimacy thing? Because intimacy with God is where it all starts. Intimacy with God is where you grow in your knowledge of who God is, in your knowledge of the gospel. It's when you come back and you realize that he loves me and wants to be in relationship with me, and so I begin to build a relationship with him. Yet some of us in our approaches to sin is not that I'm going to lose some intimacy with God here. My, my, my deterrent to sin is that what are people going to think about me around me? Rather than a sense of lost intimacy with the Most High God. 
Number two, what is the nature of your repentance? After you sin, what do you do with it? Do you go to shame, which believes that what Jesus has done isn't enough for you? That you need to, you know, bury yourself even more? Or do you go to repentance of saying, what did I believe improperly about God, and how can I actually be changed to live differently? It's taking a full 180 and going in the opposite direction. It's saying, I can't go back there, and I'm going to put into place the things in my life that are going to keep me from going in that direction. Not just every week, okay, I did this again. Oh, I'm doing this again. I truly believe we have to study the nature of our repentance. Do we actually not want to do it again? Thirdly, do you often reflect and revel upon the grace of God and his incredible love for you? You know, some of us are sitting here and be like, wow, this is hard. I can't wait to get out of here. You know why it's hard? Because God's love is incredible. And rather than going to the place of, I'm awful, think about how great he is that he wants to be in relationship with me and that he's given me the opportunity and he was loving enough to put these warnings in the scriptures so that I could be aware of these things and then grow into relationship and the knowledge and the fullness of his love for me. Rather than I have to go and get my act figured out, I get to go figure my act figured out because it means I'm going to have grow in my relationship with Jesus. I'm going to have knowledge of the gospel deep into my bones so I can share that good news with other people because if it's truly good news, it must be good news to share. Because other people are dying apart from Christ and I don't want them to die apart from Christ because if they only knew what I had, they would want it too. And maybe they'd say no, but at least I'd had the opportunity to share it with them. Or who am I now training around me? Oh, guys, you, you know, you're getting together in your DNA groups or whatever it is. got to know, like, I am growing in my relationship with Jesus. I, I can't help but tell you more about what's going on. Like, he revealed this to me the other day, and man, it was hard. But praise be to God, he revealed it to me. Oh, Jesus, you're so good. This is what it's about. And lastly, do you desire greater intimacy with the Holy Spirit? Because the Holy Spirit desires greater intimacy with you. He wants to fill you. He wants you to know that he loves you. He wants to restore the relationships that you're in. He wants to heal your body. He wants to see the kingdom of God in this world, in this city. And he sees us and he allows us to be simple conduits of himself to the world. Are you in any way stopping the flow of the Holy Spirit to the world? Do you want to grow up? Friends, brothers, sisters, participants, if you're here as a participant, the gospel is available to you. The good news of Jesus, that God is redeeming and restoring all that is broken. And he does it because of his incredible love for you. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. He didn't have to. He wanted to. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. I've got two sons, and I'd never send one of them to the cross for you. That he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him, in him, nothing else, not in yourself, in him, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Praise be to God. Do you believe this? And not in the head, but in your heart that flows into your hands. 
May we heed the warnings of our order this morning. Beware of prolonged spiritual infancy. We must grow up. And warning to beware of participation that is not genuine salvation. I'm going to invite our band. And what I'm going to ask us to do is like, it's not like, you know, I'm standing here and I've got this all figured out. Like, I've been struggling with Hebrews too. So what that's a sign to me is, is that I need to grow up. Get out of your elementary ways. Grow up. Desire knowledge. Desire more understanding that does not just simply stay here, but goes here and then flows out. The question I ask us, do you want that too? Do you want to grow in the knowledge of God and who he is and what he's done? And if that is you, I would ask in whichever way you want to respond today to respond. Do not leave here without doing some business. A business moment that is going to start here, it's going to be a catalyst here, and then it's going to flow out of your life. Because if I have a concern for our church family, it's this, spiritual infancy. But we can grow up. How can, why can we grow up? Because he loves us that much. He wants us to grow He gives us the power to grow so we can grow. And if you're sitting there and you're like, I don't know how to do it, good, that's a great place to start. I invite you to come talk to Spencer about joining a missional community. And if you're already part of a missional community and you're realizing that your MC, your missional community, is participating in your spiritual stagnation, there's a warning coming to you and you need to talk about that this week. But guys, we're not actually building each other up here. We're actually tearing each other down. We're stagnant. We're not even changing our our homes, let alone the homes around us. We need to get our act together because the good news is that good. The Guelph needs to hear it and we got to pray for the lost. Let's pray. If you want this space up here. Now some of us are like, I would never do that. That seems really out of my comfort zone. Oh my goodness, to put you out of your comfort zone. Come to the front and kneel and confess your sin to the Lord and repent. The space is open for you. Come forward and be prayed for. Say, I'm, I'm, I'm immature. I need to grow. And allow people to speak into your life. But come forward and pray that the Holy Spirit breaks you so that you would realize what's available to you. And may we truly grow in our love for Jesus because of who he is and what he's done. Oh my goodness, what an amazing thing that would be. It's infectious. So come forward, kneel. You know, as I've told you a couple weeks ago, I've started counseling. And one of the very first things that my counselor has me doing is breathing exercises. I'm like, breathing exercises? Just tell me I need Jesus more. She's like, no, breathing exercises because my physical is connected to my emotional, which is connected to my spiritual. Whoa. So there's totally something to surrendering ourselves physically of saying, raising our hands and saying, God, I need you. And some of us are like, we always stand like this. And I'm not against standing like this all the time. But if you want to have a heart posture of repenting and opening yourself up to God, open yourself up physically. Cam sent me a video this week about power posture. If you want to be a more confident person, walk around in more of a power posture. Start physically, it'll change you emotionally. It's 
powerful. So how does this relate? Sometimes coming forward and kneeling does that. It says, wow, that was, a, that was a catalyst in my life that moment when I actually surrendered physically to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is not easy. Oh my goodness, I thank you that you helped me get through this today. God, to challenge a church community, to challenge my family, to challenge my brothers and sisters, to to at the same time be calling myself out and maybe the ways that I am improperly discipling a group of people. God, forgive me if I have done anything, Lord, in my human capacity to prevent our community from growing into deeper depths with you. But Lord, I know that deeper than a church's responsibility is an individual's responsibility. And so Lord, I pray for those of us in this room that recognize that we're not growing, we're stagnant, we're spiritual infants, we're acting like we're big kids, but we're little infants who don't even know the good news of Jesus, can't even internalize it to then share it externally. God, may we grow in our gospel fluency. Oh God, how we need you. So desperately need you your name. Amen.